You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at History of the Second World War. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 23, Momentum. Thanks for joining me. Before we get to the meat of the episode, I have an announcement to make. As some of you may have already noticed, the Age of Napoleon is now part of a podcast network called Recorded History. If you don't know what a podcast network is, You're not alone, I didn't either, but it's not unlike a television network or a radio station. The show will remain independent, but we'll now be pooling our resources with other history podcasters. This is big news for me because it's going to make operating the show a lot easier. For you listeners, hopefully that will translate into more content of higher quality, as I can focus more on the creative aspects of the show but you are probably not going to notice much of a change. The main difference will be advertising. Those of you who were not caught up on old episodes at the time of this recording may have already encountered them. I realize that might be a drag. I listen to podcasts myself, and I'm never particularly excited to tune in for the commercials. That said, putting out the show is a ton of work. Hours and hours go into every episode. I absolutely love doing it, but I need to find ways to make it pay if I'm going to keep putting so much of myself into it, while maintaining the standard of quality I think all of us want. The support we've gotten on Patreon has been amazing, and I'm grateful for it. I can't express how humbling it is every month to see how many of you believe in the show enough to fork over a little hard-earned cash to keep it going. Unfortunately, it's just not enough on its own, and frankly, I need the help and support I get by joining a network. The folks who run Recorded History are podcasters themselves. They understand the relationship hosts have with their listeners, and are pretty discerning about what advertisers make the cut. We're not going to ruin your experience by saturating the show, or running anything obnoxious, or trying to sell you on scams. But I've droned on long enough. Good news for the show, just brace yourself for a little light marketing. Think of it as donating a minute or two of your time to keep the Age of Napoleon going. Alright, on with the show. We left off last time in October of 1795. France was on the eve of inaugurating a new government. The convention, which had ruled the country in one form or another since 1792, had finally produced a new constitution and made itself obsolete. 
However, before the new constitution could be implemented, the convention had to face one final challenge from the resurgent political right, a royalist rebellion in Paris, known as the Uprising of 13 Vendémiaire. The convention was caught flat-footed by the crisis. They considered the right wing to be their allies, and didn't imagine they might rebel until the very eve of the uprising. As the government scrambled, they turned to Paul Barra, a corrupt but influential member of the convention. Barra was not much of a soldier, and so for military expertise, he turned to an old ally-slash-rival, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon was technically just Barra's chief of staff, a supporting role, but he jumped into the situation with his usual forcefulness and energy, and quickly outshined his nominal commander. The rebellion was suppressed, and Bonaparte got most of the credit. In the space of less than 48 hours, Napoleon's moribund career had completely turned around. For the first time in his life, he was in the national spotlight, which he found he very much enjoyed. And he wielded real political influence, which he found he enjoyed even more. So, we're all caught up with the political situation and with Napoleon, but it's been a while since we checked in with the armies on the front and the progress of the war. Napoleon will soon be rejoining that war, so this is a good time for an update. The last time we looked at the War of the First Coalition, the Republicans had, against all odds, begun to turn the tide in their favor. During late 1794 and early 1795, that trend accelerated. As the momentum shifted further in France's favor, the coalition began losing members. Some bowed out voluntarily. They had signed up for a short, easy war against what they believed was a collapsing state. Now the war was entering its third year, and still intensifying. Other countries were forced out of the war by more immediate, practical considerations, Republican troops on their doorstep. The first to fall was the Dutch Republic. In late 1794, the French completed their conquest of the Austrian Netherlands, roughly corresponding to modern Belgium. The Austrian government decided to abandon this theater of the war entirely and focus their resources elsewhere leaving the small, weak Dutch army to stand alone. The French didn't wait to push their advantage. They launched a surprise winter offensive, incredibly rare in this era, a testament to the morale and commitment of the Republican troops. It was a big gamble. The winter of 1794 through 5 turned out to be one of the coldest in memory. Temperatures in the Low Countries got down to zero degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 17 Celsius. The soldiers suffered terribly. However, it was so cold that most of the canals and rivers that crisscrossed the Netherlands froze over. The Dutch have always relied on their country's numerous waterways to hold off invaders. Suddenly, that advantage was gone. Taken by surprise and robbed of their natural defenses, the small Dutch army was completely outmatched. Britain sent reinforcements, but by the time they arrived, the coalition lines were completely shattered. The French had too much momentum to be stopped. Compounding the coalition's problems, many people in the Netherlands actually supported the French. If you'll recall all the way back in episode 2, 
The Dutch had recently undergone their own period of civil conflict between right and left. Unlike in France, the conservatives had triumphed. But there were still many in the country who sympathized with the defeated left-wing radical faction, known as the Patriots. After their defeat, some Patriot leaders had gone into exile in France. Now they were returning home, wearing the blue jackets of the French Republican Army, and doing their best to convince people this was a liberation, not an invasion. As the French advanced, Patriots in Holland grew bolder and began to organize. In January of 1795, radicals in Amsterdam rose up and demanded the city government, dominated by the conservative Orangist faction, hand over its authority to a provisional committee of Patriot leaders. The city seemed to be on the verge of a bloodbath. The Dutch army was completely incapable of stopping the French, who were by then only days away, and the population was divided against itself. The government saw little choice but to comply. Prince William V of Orange, ruler of the Netherlands, gathered a small entourage of prominent Orangists and boarded a ship bound for exile in England. The revolutionaries declared the old, conservative Dutch state dead. This was to be a new era for the country, and so the Patriots gave it a new name. On January 19, 1795, the provisional government proclaimed the Batavian Republic, hearkening back to the old Latin name for the Low Countries, used in Roman times. That same day, French units began arriving in the city, totally unopposed, and greeted by cheering crowds of Patriot supporters. Dutch involvement in the coalition was decidedly over. The new Batavian Republic would be a staunch ally of France. The Patriots settled in to write a new constitution, and I'll give you one guess which countries they used as their model. The Dutch army was quite small, dominated by Orangists, and had been utterly savaged by the French. The Batavian Republic wouldn't be much of an ally on the battlefield until it could raise new regiments and train new officers. However, the Dutch navy was seized mostly intact, and many sailors and officers agreed to serve the Patriots. This was a huge boon to the French navy, which had suffered terribly at the hands of the British and needed all the help it could get. But the most important thing the Batavians brought to the table was their country's significant financial resources. This was one of the wealthiest places in Europe. And by wealthy, I don't just mean that the people were prosperous, although they were. The Netherlands had a robust system of banking and credit, much better developed than anything in France. It was also a major commercial center. Dutch merchants had well-established footholds all over the world, including in many places their French counterparts had barely penetrated. The Batavian Republic was a cash cow, but with its legitimacy weak and its army in tatters, it was utterly dependent on French support. The French government would exploit that fact to milk it for all it was worth. The Patriots were never able to break their dependence on France and assert themselves as a sovereign state. For the whole history of the Batavian Republic, a large French garrison kept order and guarded the coasts, and the Patriots paid handsomely for the privilege, not always voluntarily. The French referred to the new Batavian state as a sister republic, 
Less poetic, and more anti-French, sources refer to it as a satellite of France, or even as a puppet government. Whatever you want to call it, the French found it to be a useful model, and as the Republican armies continued to advance and conquer new territories, it would be employed elsewhere. As for the former Austrian Netherlands, modern Belgium, it was annexed into France, becoming nine new departments. No foreign powers recognized the annexation at first, but they would remain French territory until the fall of Napoleon in 1814. While the French and the Patriots were consolidating their victories in the Low Countries, things were heating up on the southern front. The next country to fall would be Spain. By mid-1794, the Spanish army was beginning to suffer serious defeats but it was actually in even worse shape than it looked. Many of the military revolutions of the 18th century had passed Spain by. Now, that's not to say the Spanish army didn't have good officers, but they often lacked the know-how to build the type of army they wanted, or were overruled by a leadership that was dominated by nepotism and corruption. Spain was supported by the Portuguese, but the Portuguese army was plagued with many of the same problems plus had a lot less manpower to work with. Nonetheless, the coalition forces in the Pyrenees theater had actually performed okay in the early phase of the war, when the French were distracted and in disarray. But as the French regained their footing, the Iberian offensive ran out of steam, and the deficiencies of the Spanish and Portuguese armies began to show. In 1794, General Dugamier, who you may remember from the Siege of Toulon as Napoleon's final and only competent commander, pushed the Iberians entirely out of southwestern France and over the Pyrenees Mountains into Catalonia. On the Atlantic side of the border, a smaller Republican army pushed into Basque country. The main coalition army, under the count of Conde de la Union, moved to block Dugamier's army from advancing into the Spanish interior. The two armies met on November 17th at the Battle of the Black Mountain. This was a bloody, violent engagement. It lasted three whole days. Both sides suffered heavy casualties, including both Dugamier and Conde de la Union, who were killed in action. But the Spanish and the Portuguese got the worst of it by far. Over 20% of their army was killed, wounded, or captured, and many more fled the field, or became separated from their units in the confusion. The coalition had no choice but to completely withdraw from the area, to rebuild their shattered army out of France's reach. This was a catastrophe for Spain. With eastern Catalonia secured, all of the Spanish interior lay open to invasion. And there was more bad news from the north, in Basque country. As the French advanced, the loyalty of the semi-autonomous local Basque government looked shaky. In the end, it had agreed to support the Spanish war effort, but only after contentious debate. The central government in Madrid worried they might change their minds if the tide turned any further in favor of the Republicans. Less than a year ago, the war had been going quite well for the Spanish. Now, disaster loomed. In Catalonia, the fortresses at Roses and Figueres fell to the Republicans. In the north, they took Vitoria and Bilbao. 
the invasion seemed to be gaining momentum. No doubt many in Madrid were wondering why they had agreed to join this coalition in the first place. France and Spain had an intense rivalry during the Renaissance, but their points of contention had been largely resolved in the mid-17th century. In more recent history, the two countries had been close allies, united by their common enmity towards Britain. From a purely rational geopolitical standpoint, it made no sense for Spain to join forces with her greatest enemy in a war against her strongest historical ally. But of course, diplomacy is rarely guided by rational geopolitical calculations alone. Spain was ruled by the Bourbon dynasty. That's Bourbon in the original French. Its royal family were cousins to the executed Louis XVI of France, and to his brothers, who were leaders in the counter-revolutionary émigré movement. Every conservative royal court in Europe had been incensed by the execution of Louis and the persecution of the French aristocracy. But those Bourbon family ties meant it was felt even more acutely in Spain. In 1792, the outrage had been enough to override all other considerations of national interest and draw the country into war with France. Now, three years later, faced with the prospect of revolutionary armies overrunning the entire country, the Spanish government was, let's say, looking at this situation in a new light. Was the honor of the House of Bourbon really worth the destruction of the kingdom? Spain's leaders determined, no, it was not, and sued for peace. On July 22, 1795, French and Spanish diplomats signed a peace treaty in Basel, Switzerland. Another major country was out of the coalition, and another front of the war closed. The Republicans were a step closer to doing the impossible. The withdrawal of Spain and the Netherlands were terrible blows for the coalition, but that wasn't the worst news the Allies would receive in 1795. When the Spanish envoys arrived in Basel, their French counterparts had already been there for months, negotiating a different treaty with an even bigger power, Prussia. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Prussia wasn't under direct military threat from France, the way Spain and the Netherlands had been. But they had their own good reasons to seek peace with the Republic. Much like Spain, from a geopolitical standpoint, Prussia's involvement in the coalition had never made much sense. Their interests didn't really conflict with French interests. Like the Spanish, they were mostly fighting out of principle, to defend monarchy and the old order, 
and punish what they saw as barbaric mob rule in Paris. But if you set aside those philosophical justifications and look at the situation from the coldly rational perspective of great power competition, the war was just the latest chapter in Britain and Austria's long-standing rivalries with France, and it was hard to see how Prussia might benefit if her new allies were victorious. Indeed, Austria had been Prussia's chief geopolitical foe for decades, and that rivalry was still simmering in Central and Eastern Europe, even as the two countries fought side by side in the West. On the other hand, France and Prussia had a history of cooperating against their common Austrian enemy. By joining the coalition, the Prussians had in effect offered to help their enemy defeat a potential ally. In 1792, most of the Prussian ruling class was too caught up with war fever and eager to punish the insolent revolutionaries to give this too much thought. But as the conflict dragged on and grew harder, bloodier, and more expensive than anyone had predicted, they were forced to reevaluate their role in the coalition. Under even a cursory examination, it just didn't make much sense. Once the Kosciuszko Uprising broke out in 1794, the war against France became even harder to justify. Why should Prussia spend all these resources on a war that was almost irrelevant to its foreign policy aims while there was a crisis in the East that imminently threatened its interests? No one had a good answer. And so, Prussian troops began pulling out from Western Germany and Prussian diplomats began making overtures to revolutionary France. By the end of 1794, Prussia remained part of the coalition in name only. On April 5, 1795, Prussian and French diplomats signed a peace treaty in Basel, Switzerland. Prussia was considered one of the five great powers of Europe, but going purely by the numbers, this wasn't as big a loss for the alliance as you might think. Even at the peak of Prussian involvement, the Austrians, Piedmontese, and Spanish had borne the brunt of the war effort. However, Prussian withdrawal was a psychological and moral blow to the coalition. The Prussian army was still thought of as the best in Europe. As we've discussed at length, there was a revolution in warfare underway. The country at the cutting edge of these changes was France, not Prussia. But most people were still in that mid-18th century mindset. This was the army of Frederick the Great, which had defied the mightiest empires on the continent, and completely upended the European balance of power. Frederick the Great was dead and buried, and so was his style of warfare. But the legendary reputation of his army would remain intact for another 11 years. The remaining members of the coalition were disheartened. The old monarchies were trying to present a united front against the ideological threat of the French Republic. The narrative pushed by the coalition was that the whole continent had put aside their petty squabbles to stand united against the dangerous ideas espoused by the revolutionaries in Paris. We know that narrative had never been entirely true. But at the beginning of the War of the First Coalition, the Allies had managed to minimize their differences and hold together as if it was. 
By the end of 1794, this so-called United Front was beginning to crack. In 1795, it began to crumble under the relentless pressure of the Republican armies. 1794 and 1795 were two more years of stunning reversals. Until recently, none of it would have seemed possible. However, we shouldn't overestimate the troubles of the coalition, or underestimate the uphill climb still faced by the Republicans. France's most powerful enemies, Austria and Great Britain, remained totally committed to the fight. In fact, if anything, their horror at seeing the advance of republicanism and French power had stiffened their resolve. Portugal, Piedmont, Naples, and almost all of the smaller states of Germany and Italy remained steadfast as well. There had been some bloody battles, but the war was still relatively small-scale compared to the last great pan-European conflict, the Seven Years' War. The remaining armies and navies of the coalition were still formidable, and mostly in pretty good condition. Expenses were mounting, but Britain provided lavish subsidies to anyone willing to fight the French, and the unprecedented growth in British financial power over the 18th century meant they could bear the cost, for now. Maybe the French could finally see the light at the end of the tunnel after the successes of 1794 and 5, but it was still faint and distant. That leaves us more or less caught up with the progress of the war, Believe it or not, that was actually the short version. The longer the war goes on, the more things intensify, and the more we have to gloss over in order to keep moving. In any case, let's turn our attention back to Napoleon. As you may recall from last episode, the War Ministry had just recently moved Bonaparte from the list of active generals to the inactive list. On paper, he was involuntarily retired. But before he had to suffer any consequences, the Vendémiaire uprising began, and his appointment as Barra's second-in-command led him to be quietly moved back to the active column. As with any great historical figure, Napoleon's good luck was almost as impressive as any of his personal qualities. Barra's official military title was Commander of the Army of the Interior. This was a bit of an unusual position. As in most militaries, every Republican army had a defined area of operations. The Army of the Sambre and Meuse was assigned to the Rhineland. The Army of the West was assigned to the Vendée, etc. Sort of like jurisdictions for police or local government. This made the war effort simpler to manage. The Army of the Interior was unique in that, as the name suggests, its area of operations was the interior, all of the parts of French territory that were not near a front line and assigned to another army. The Army of the Interior had the same status as the field armies out on the borders, and its commander had the exact same status as any other army commander, but it wasn't a real army in any sense you'd probably think of one. It didn't do much fighting or maneuvering, its mission was preserving internal order and safeguarding the government, ensuring there would never be another close call like there had been on 13 Vendémiaire. 
The commander of the Army of the Interior didn't have many men under his command, and he was unlikely to win much battlefield glory. But the nature of the position made it one of the most powerful and influential in the entire Republic. Much like in ancient Rome, it was illegal for field armies to approach the capital city. So whoever commanded the Army of the Interior had a monopoly on military force in Paris. That force was only supposed to be used to protect the government. But what if he himself decided to overthrow it? There would be very little holding him back, other than trust and loyalty. If you know your Roman history, you might think of the Army of the Interior as roughly equivalent to the Praetorian Guard, which often became a power behind the throne, and even overthrew several emperors. The revolutionaries certainly knew their Roman history, and the parallels were not lost on them. They understood the importance of keeping the Army of the Interior happy, which gave anyone who commanded it instant political influence. So, you might be surprised to learn that Bara only held on to this valuable position for a few weeks before resigning to let Napoleon take over. Last episode, I mentioned that Napoleon had likely only agreed to help Bara under the condition that he be rewarded later. Many historians believe the position of commander of the Army of the Interior was part of whatever deal they struck, and I agree. Napoleon took command on October 27, 1795, three weeks and one day after Vendemiaire. Of course, it simply wouldn't do for a mere brigadier general to command an entire army, so he was also promoted to the rank of general of division, the second highest rank in the Republican army. Not bad for a 26-year-old who had only been a lieutenant at the outbreak of war in 1792. If you subtract all that time Napoleon spent on leave, he had only spent about five years total in the army. Now he had climbed almost all the way to the top. Napoleon and Bara had worked around the clock during the uprising, but now that it was suppressed, commanding the Army of the Interior was a part-time job. So Napoleon was able to do double duty and keep his position at the Topographical Bureau. As always, he kept himself busy, supervising his new army as they rounded up rebels, shut down right-wing political clubs, and confiscated weapons from the bourgeois neighborhoods of the city and at the Topographical Bureau, elaborating on that grand plan for a fast, aggressive invasion of northern Italy, which had been in his thoughts since early 1794. Even with all that, he still found time to enjoy his newfound success. You might remember a few episodes back, I read a passage by Lord Abrantes, she was a famous socialite who would go on to marry Napoleon's friend and assistant, Junot, and who didn't have many kind words to say about Napoleon's appearance when they first met in 1794. Here's how she described him during this period, just after Vendemiaire. Quote, A great change had taken place in Bonaparte, and the change in regard to attention to his person was not the least remarkable. After the 13th of Vendemiaire, muddy boots were out of the question. Bonaparte always went out in a handsome carriage, and lived in a very respectable house on the Rue des Capucines. In short, he had become a necessary and important figure. End quote. 
Typical for Madame de Brantes, she dwells a lot on appearances. But I think the impression we get is pretty clear. Fame and fortune agreed with Napoleon. As he moved up in the world, he was becoming more secure in his own skin. In the weeks and months after his appointment, Napoleon wrote a flurry of letters to Joseph, explaining how the whole extended Bonaparte family would benefit from his new position. Joseph had joined the Foreign Service, and was now in Genoa, working as a junior staffer in the French consulate. I'll read a couple lines from some of these letters. Quote, I have been appointed General-in-Chief of the Army of the Interior. My health is good, although I lead a very busy life. The multiplicity and importance of my business prevent me from writing you more frequently. You need not worry about our family. They are well provided with everything. I have sent them each between 50 and 60,000 francs. You will soon be promoted to consul. If you are tired of Genoa, I see no objection to your coming to Paris. I can give you an apartment, a table, and a carriage. If you do not wish for a consulship, come here. You shall choose your position. Goodbye, my dear Joseph. You would do me wrong if you thought that I could be indifferent for one instant to anything that concerns you. Be cheerful, and if you are tired, come to Paris. Amuse yourself here until you find something that suits you. End quote. Clearly, Napoleon was excited by their future prospects, and eager to show off to his older brother. That was just the beginning of the largesse that flowed from Napoleon's new position. Every member of the Bonaparte family got hooked up in the ensuing months. Ten-year-old Jerome, the youngest of the family, was given a place in an exclusive boarding school. With his promotion, Napoleon was able to expand his personal military staff, so he hired younger brother Louis Bonaparte as an aide. Twenty-year-old Lucien Bonaparte had been languishing away at a low-level position in the army commissary office, but suddenly got a big promotion, as did one cousin in the civil service and another in the police. Napoleon's rich uncle, Joseph Fesch, had seen the family through many hard times in the tough years after Carlo's death, but as a wealthy Catholic priest, he'd been hit hard by the revolution, and the shoe was now on the other foot. Napoleon returned the kindness, showering him with money and finding him a job in the war ministry. It's hard to know for sure how much of this patronage was part of that deal with Bara struck on the night of Vendémiaire, and how much of it came later, bought with the influence he gained from his new command. Whichever the case, Napoleon was practically falling over himself to share his good fortune. As you can see, he was quickly discovering that he loved doling out favors. He took good care of his friends, too, even strangers, according to some sources. Famine struck France again in the winter of 1795 and 6. Lord de Brantes claims Napoleon bought bread for at least a hundred starving families. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'll leave it for you to judge the motivations behind all this generosity. Like most people, even Napoleon felt impulses towards kindness and charity. Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe he was trying to buy influence and loyalty. Maybe he simply enjoyed feeling like a big shot. If you want to go really deep, maybe it was an expression of his ideals of civic virtue. Or maybe he was playing the part of a traditional Corsican clan chieftain, sharing spoils with his followers. Whether it was all of these reasons, some combination, or something else entirely, we can't know and I won't speculate. But whatever his motivations, it was the beginning of a lifelong habit. From here on out, for the foreseeable future, Napoleon's rise to power will only accelerate. At some point in some future episode, you may find yourself wondering what it was about him that attracted such deep loyalty from so many people. Well, this type of generosity is a big part of the explanation. He always shared his success with those around him. Bonaparte never forgot a favor, and nobody who served him well went unrewarded. He expected a lot of the people around him. As we've seen, Napoleon could be pushy and demanding, and his subordinates all lived in fear of disappointing him. I tend to think of this generosity as the other side of that same coin. The events of 13 Vendémiaire completely transformed Napoleon's political and military career. He was at the beginning of an upward trajectory that would carry him, almost without interruption, to dictatorship over the entire country in only four years. It was also a turning point in his social life. Maybe this wasn't quite as important a transformation, but it was just as drastic. I'm speculating here, but I think the big change was in Napoleon's status, not his personality or habits. Behavior that might be seen as strange or unpleasant in a low-status person might easily be interpreted as harmless or even appealing coming from someone perceived as important and well-connected. Overnight, Napoleon had become a minor celebrity— His name and face were on the front page of every newspaper and in hundreds of pamphlets. He became an important man in the government, and he was closely identified with Bara, who was an even more important man in the government, as well as being a fixture on the Paris social scene. That must have dramatically changed people's perceptions of Bonaparte in social settings. Perhaps mannerisms that read as gloomy or sullen before Vendémiaire now seemed mysterious and sage-like. Maybe people who had once found him boring for refusing to engage in small talk now saw him as too intelligent and important to be bothered with trifles. 
Even bad fashion sense and poor grooming are sometimes forgiven as eccentricities of genius. The change could not have been better timed for his romantic life. Napoleon was finally over his failed romance with Desiree Clary and more eager than ever to get married. However, the next woman to catch his eye would not be at any hip salon or debauched party, but someone he met in the line of duty and became interested in only out of the purest possible sentiments. Sometime in late 1795, a 14-year-old boy showed up at the headquarters of the Army of the Interior, demanding to speak with the commander-in-chief. Curious and a bit amused, Napoleon agreed to hear him out. As the boy's story went, Army of the Interior troops had swept through his neighborhood during their sweeps for illegal weapons after Vendemiaire. They confiscated from his apartment a ceremonial sword which had belonged to his father, a Republican general who had served loyally but been unjustly executed by the Jacobins after suffering a defeat in the field. The boy and his widowed mother possessed no other mementos, he said, and he begged Napoleon to return the sword in recognition of his father's service. Napoleon was immensely moved by this story and impressed by the boy's maturity and sense of duty to his father's memory. He took down the family's address and ordered his men to find the sword, which was soon delivered to his office. He decided to return it personally. This boy had made an impression on him, and he was curious about the type of mother who had raised such a son and instilled him with such strong values, and of course, who was apparently single. So, sword in hand, he called on their modest apartment, and was greeted by an almost unbelievably beautiful woman. This was the boy's mother. Her name was Rose Tasher de la Pagerie, and Napoleon knew in an instant this would be the woman he married. Not only was she beautiful, he knew from meeting her son that she was a good mother, devoted to family, and shared many of his values. The attraction was mutual and after only a few months of courting, the two were married, March 9th, 1796. It was a perfect romance, marred only by one tiny, insignificant problem. Napoleon hated the name Rose, so he decided to simply call her something else, and apparently she didn't mind. And that is why posterity, and most of you listening, probably know her by another name, Josephine. It really is an amazing story, almost more like something from a movie or a novel than real life. And that's because it is, in fact, entirely fictional. This is the version of their romance Napoleon and Josephine would later sell to the public, but it was manufactured out of whole cloth to enhance their reputations and to cover up the much more sordid truth of the origins of their relationship. When the couple met, Josephine was not some chaste, virtuous matriarch. She was the fast-living, hard-partying belle of the decadent Paris social scene, famous, or maybe infamous, for her affairs with powerful men. Most recently, with the infinitely sleazy Paul Barra. Barra decided to set her up with Napoleon in large part because he was tired of paying for her extravagant tastes. 
It's easy, and to be honest, kind of fun, to paint Josephine as a kind of 18th century reality TV starlet. But while that's not entirely inaccurate, she had a lot more depth than that caricature suggests. But we'll have to wait until next time to get a proper introduction to France's first empress. We'll also take a look at the new revolutionary government, and Napoleon will cash in on some more of his favors from Vendemiaire, in exchange for the field command he'd always dreamed of. In the meantime, go check out one of the other shows on our new podcasting network, Recorded History. The website is recordedhistory.net, and they're easy to find on social media as well. They've got over 20 shows and counting. They totally run the gamut in style, structure, and subject. If you like this show enough to keep tuning in, I'm sure you'll find at least one more that piques your interest on recordedhistory.net. Anyway, as always, until next time, thanks for listening.